Turn in your Bible to uh, Mark chapter 13. We're going to be reading verses 28 through 37. Mark chapter 13, verses 28 through 37. It's on page 850 if you have a pew Bible or pew style Bible. Uh, And if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 13, verses 28 through 37. From the fig tree lesson... Uh, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The word of God. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning to hear your word. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in darkness. You have not left us in the brokenness of this world, but you have written yourself into the story. You have come. And today, the first Sunday of Advent, we celebrate the hope that we have in the gospel. The hope that we have that though this world with, um, that is cursed by sin, Though roots of bitterness and, it, the, uh, and, and the sin and curse grow deeply in the ground, the king has come. And with the cross, he plunged it into the heart of sin and death itself, triumphing over them once and for all. And Christ is coming again to vanquish sin and death and to wipe it clean and to draw those who believe to himself, his people, his chosen, his elect, the faithful. Not one has he lost. Not one could be plucked from his hand. The love of God is so deep and rich and strong and true that heaven or hell, death nor life, nor principalities, nor angels, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And Father, we long for the day that our loving Savior who knows our name, that has not left us as orphan, that has deposited his spirit in us, the spirit that testifies that we are sons and daughters of God, is coming back to gather his people to himself. May we be ready. 
May we be found faithful as we look to that day in the midst of our trials and our troubles, our disappointments. We say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we come to you today because you sustain us in this period of watching and waiting where the Son of Man is near. We lift up our brothers and sisters that are not here today, those who have been in contact with us. But in this virus and pandemic, Lord, we know they are joining us online in their prayers, united by the Spirit. I pray that you would guard and protect them and bring them to us soon. Father, I pray, especially right now, for Jim and Pam, at the end of this year, that you would preserve not only all of our brothers and sisters, but you would specifically preserve Jim as he um, has to work a certain amount of hours for health insurance. And I pray that you would preserve and protect him over the next few weeks as he is on the front lines serving um, all at the grocery store, Lord, that you would preserve and protect him, that he may not grow ill and that he would be able to get his hours in. Father, I pray that in this uh, pandemic that you would um, preserve and provide spiritually, emotionally, um, financially for all our brothers and sisters. May we be quick to use the resources and the extra we have to meet the needs and lack of our brothers and sisters. Father, we also thank you this week for the blessing that uh, Ginger received with a new position. Father, I, I, we thank you and we rejoice with her at this good news. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you know our name and you have not turned your back on us, but you've encouraged us. You know what was coming. Your spirit walks beside us. And your son is getting to gather us and retrieve us and bring us to heaven to dwell with our, our, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all who trust in you. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Today, uh, we come to the final section of uh, the final uh, section of the Olivet Discourse, this uh, Mark chapter 13. And um, I must say, uh, preaching through eschatology passages about end times is a bit exhaustive. Um, I don't like it because I've said in the past people often don't listen because they're trying to figure out times and dates and charts and signs and symbols and they miss Jesus. Uh, but I'm very thankful for these four or five weeks that we have been here in Mark chapter 13 to be able to hear and see Christ in all of this. Uh, this week, um, we have to remember trying to be, it's been four or five weeks that we've been here. In the beginning of Mark chapter 13, you remember Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. And at the time, the Mount of Olives was uh, a, really a wooded area. And you could look, and sitting among the trees there, you could look down on the temple, and you could see all the hustle and bustle. You could see the smoke coming from the sacrifice. And Jesus and his disciples are sitting here. And he's talking with them. And he's teaching them. 
And typically, when Jesus was teaching, whether it be the crowds or his disciples or uh, Peter, James, and John, he was teaching them in order to prepare them specifically for something that they would not go be unaware. Very similar to with your children or your grandchildren, that you know that something is coming, some experience in your life, and you prepare them and you talk through, here's what you should expect. If this happens, here's how you should respond. And Jesus, who loves his disciples greatly, is doing the same thing. He knows that this magnificent temple that they're looking upon, that is in its spectacular glory, they, he knows the judgment of God will come within a few decades and fall on this temple, and it will have potentially devastating effects both on the lives and on the faith of Jesus' disciples. And he loves his disciples too much to allow their faith to fail. Therefore, Jesus is teaching them. He's teaching them to warn them, to set their expectations that they know what's coming. And as a big block of text we've looked, this last section, I want you to know this. In um, my big idea this morning, drum roll please, here we go, the perils of this world cannot thwart the Father's plan of redemption. The perils of this world cannot thwart the Father's plan of redemption. Therefore, Jesus is going to call his disciples to be courageous and to be vigilant. To be courageous and to be vigilant uh, vigilant as they trust the Father's plan of redemption, though perils of this world will cause their hearts to fear. Be courageous and be vigilant. Because Jesus knows what's coming. Let's review a little bit. Go back in verse 2 of chapter 13. You see the disciples almost off the cuff random statement. They said, do you see these great buildings? Uh, There, um, Jesus says, there will be none left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus knows the unthinkable is coming. This magnificent temple, this um, picture of power and ingenuity in this magnificent temple will fall with devastating destruction. Desolation and tribulation will overwhelm the people of God. It will feel like the end of the world is unfolding in their midst. Many of us may have, have similar feelings when we watch the towers fall on 9-11. Um, during that greatest generation when the, um, when the bombs fell on Pearl Harbor, it's that kind of significance nationally and ethnically as a people. And Jesus knows it will shake them. And he wants his disciples and he wants us to know this that the sovereign God has neither abdicated the throne nor has he been overthrown. He is accomplishing his purpose. He's neither abdicated the throne nor has he been overthrown. In his mercy, in the mercy of our compassionate Savior, Jesus gives his, uh, his disciples two lessons, two parables, literally the, the words say, to warn them and to instruct them as they seek their heavenly father. The parable of the fig tree 
and the parable of the watchman. The first one is the parable of the fig tree where we learn in this text to be courageous. To be courageous. Often we think, what is the first thing that you think of when you think of courage? The cowardly lion, right? Or somebody else, somebody said something else. It wasn't the cowardly lion. That's the first thing I did. Um, I'll be the king of the forest. Um, but reality is, sorry, that was terrible. Um, I'll leave, leave the music team to singing. Courage. What is courage? Courage is the mental and moral strength to persevere and to withstand in the face of danger, fear, and difficulty. You think well, probably one of the most courageous things was the, uh, on D-Day when the first wave of Normandy hit the beaches at Normandy and Omaha and the, the, uh, the, the boats that they have, the front fell, and those brave warriors knew that they would be facing the fire of the Nazi army, yet in, they had great fear, knowing that they were going up, but they courageously moved forward because they knew that's what they had to do and they courageously face their fears brothers and sisters you cannot have courage without fear you cannot have courage without opposition without resistance from outside whether it be invading forces or inside you don't need courage when your life is full of peace and calm and ease when do you need courage? You need courage in the difficulties. When your heart and your head tells you to fear, you need courage to overcome those things. And Jesus knows that in the face of pain and difficulty and fear and resistance, his disciples needed courage to believe the promises of God because courage, my friends, is not for wimps. Ocean Park, courage is found by knowing the times and knowing the promises of our eternal God. Notice the time, knowing the times that gives us courage in verses 28 and 30. From the fig tree, Jesus says, learn its lesson, its parable. As soon as the branch becomes tender, the sap that flows through it and puts out its leaves, its buds, you know that summer is near. Or as the, I believe it's the message that said, you know that summer is just around the corner. The land of Israel is full of all kinds of trees, olives and oaks and terebinths and evergreen trees, none of which lose their leaves or their needles in winter. But the fig tree is one of the few deciduous trees, meaning they drop their leaves, that uh, in Palestine. Every winter it sheds its leaves and, and it puts forth new buds in late spring when summer's heat is just around the corner. So when you see the sap begin to flow through the, the, the branches and you see its buds on its limbs, you know that it's not much farther till hot summer nights in Israel. The fig's buds are a harbinger to summer heat. And so Jesus, as he's sitting in the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple, he may have been pointing to one of these fig trees and the buds on the leaves. And he says in verse 29, he uses this to teach them a spiritual lesson. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near 
at the very gates. Jesus is using the fig tree as a metaphor to emphasize the nearness of Christ's return. It's not here yet, but it's near. You know when you see these things coming uh, that Christ is near. Now, this verse is fraught with interpretive challenges, but let me give you uh, how a conviction I have uh, to tell you the question, what are these things in verse 29? I believe these things are the destruction, I'm sorry, I'm wandering, from the, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that Jesus has already told us about in verses 5 through 23. He's not including these things as the return of the Son of Man, verses 24 through 27. Why? Because the destruction and the temple of Jerusalem are the beginning of the birth pangs that Jesus talks about in all the way earlier, I think it's verse 8, the birth pangs. But this is not the end. The end is the return of the Son of Man in verses 24 through 27. Ladies, you know better than I do the, um, the course of giving birth where it may start with um, Braxton Hicks, then it becomes contractions, then it becomes your water breaks, and you know that when that happens, the baby is near. And whether you have time to get to the hospital or you give birth, as I met a guy who said he, his wife gave birth in the car uh, on the way to the hospital, or whether you have to push for two hours because Anna's head was like a big giant volleyball, or, um, sorry, I apologize, <laughs> but, or you have a long protracted labor, you know that when the contractions and the water breaks, the baby is near. You don't know if that's 20 minutes near or two days near, but the baby is near. And so as the disciples are watching these things, this great cataclysmic things that are happening in Jerusalem, you're beginning to watch the birth pangs of God's redemption plan that is unfolding in the midst of Israel and will unfold among all the world, most notably the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem, A.D. 70, which were a pattern for the last day, the final day of Christ's return. But Jesus says in verse 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Jesus knows that the disciples, as they bask in the glory of that temple today, will see the temple engulfed by smoke and destruction and chaos tomorrow. And they feel like the end of the world has come and they are hopeless, and that the enemies of God have defeated the one true God. But Jesus says, this is not the end. Notice earlier, connecting, remember, this is one big sermon that Jesus is giving, not four, but he says all the way back in seven, these, this must take place, but the end is not yet yet. Verse uh, eight, the end of verse eight, these are but the beginning of birth pains. These events that this generation will see with the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city will strike fears in their heart and they will search for answers when everything they thought they knew is now in flames in chaos. And they will say, what in the world is happening? Who can I trust? Where can I go? 
Where is God? Brothers and sisters, some of you may have had those same questions when cataclysmic events have happened in your life. And Jesus knows what will happen to his disciples, and he knows what will happen to you. Whether it be a phone call in the middle of the night, or it may be a conversation that you have, the birth pangs will shake you to the core and cause you to say, where is God? I thought I could trust him. Has evil won? Have I been abandoned by God? Instead, in those times of cataclysmic events in your life that shake you and you don't have the answers because answers are not sufficient, God is sufficient. And he's calling us to trust him. His salvation is is near. The victory has been accomplished at the cross and the Christ the Son is returning to gather his people to himself and make all things new, as is promised in Revelation 21, verse 4. And he says, know in verse 29b, know that he is near at the very gates. We haven't been abandoned. We haven't been forgotten. Jesus is near. He will not let us go under. His hand is mighty to save. When false prophets arise, when enemies attack, when friends betray you, you must not lose hope. The enemies of God and the things in this world cannot thwart God's redemptive plan to accomplish his salvation. Christ is coming. And he is bringing his salvation with him. Ocean Park, just as the promise of summer is found in the buds of the fig trees, the promise of salvation is found within the perils of this world if we are watchful and we have eyes to see and ears to hear. We can have courage in the face of impossible odds that we don't have answers for, not because of us, but because of our eternal God. When great opposition and danger and and persecution arrive, we can know that Christ is returning soon. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved completely and finally when Christ comes home back and brings us home. Not only in the midst of trials do we need to know the times to bring us courage, but we need to know the promises of God. Notice verse 31, the promises of God that bring us courage. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words, my promises will not pass away. We live in a world that is fleeting and transitory. Flowers blossom and flowers fade. The young and the powerful grow old and weary. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. The treasures that we cling to today will depreciate, decay, and deteriorate tomorrow. Our world is not eternal. Yet we think 
the things of this world are what will bring us security and happiness and joy and, and safety. Just as the, uh, the, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 51 verse 6, it says, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. And the earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it, you and me, will die in like manner. The reality of the transitory nature. But the great conjunctions of Scripture, my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. The only things that we can hold on to in this fleeting world, including the good things, the blessings, uh, good parents, um, good spouses and children, we can't hold on to them forever. And if we make them our ultimate reason for living, we make good things ultimate things, we make them worthless things. But when we hold on to Christ, to the promises of an eternal God, we have a sure and steady foundation. When we built our house on the rock, when the rains come down and the floods come up, what happens? The house on the rock stands firm. Jesus is calling his disciples and he's calling you and me to courage. Courage to trust Christ in the face of trials and persecutions, disappointments and distress, profound grief and devastating loss, when your foundations of your world are being shaken. The words of Jesus here are not cold statements of facts. They're words of compassion. They're words of compassion to people that are living in a broken world with disappointments and the weight of sin. And Jesus knows not only what was coming to the disciples in the first century, but he knows what's coming in yours and my life. Our worlds will be turned upside down. But he also knows that every idol and every institution and every functional savior we cling to will become dust in the wind. Good things and wicked things will become dust in the wind that go through our fingers. And when the dust settles, only Christ remains. Ocean Park, do you have the courage to trust Christ, to trust his promises? People are born and people will die, but the word of Christ will not pass away. Kingdoms will rise and kingdoms will fall, but the word of Christ will not pass away. Politicians will make promises and break promises, but the word of Christ will not pass away. Nothing in this world has been fashioned will remain for eternity. Our spouses, our children, our possessions, our institutions, our leaders, our nations, our politics, our wealth, the things that we think we need that we cannot live without, none of them can save you when your world is turned upside down. Do you have courage in those times to trust the promises of God? 
His brothers and sisters, the perils of this world cannot thwart the Father's plan of redemption. Therefore, we must be courageous and we must be vigilant. I have lived uh, in my life uh, long enough to hear of many people predicting the day when Christ returns. Um, 1988, Edgar Wisnott, he was actually, I believe he was somehow connected to a professor at Harvard or Yale or something, probably not for long, but he wrote 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. Uh, if you'd like to know those 88 reasons, you can buy it on Amazon for $65. Um, I probably wouldn't because he came out in 1989 uh, with another book because, um, oh, those, he went 0 for 88. Uh, in 1989, he came out with the Rapture Report, 89 more reasons for 1989. Um, he went 0 for 89 on that. He um, wasn't batting well. Uh, some of you might remember in May 21st, 2011, I was very disappointed Jesus was going to come a day before Denise and I's anniversary. I didn't buy a gift. I thought Jesus was coming back. And that, uh, that's a joke. That night I had to go out and buy something really nice. Um, but uh, Harold Camping, uh, Family Radio, um, led a lot of really good, honest um, people who wanted to know Scripture he led them to many mortgage their homes and their lives to be able to buy advertisements, um, to go to the website, website wecanknow.com. Uh, you can also have that website now because it's no longer working because, as we can tell, Jesus did not come back. Brothers and sisters, people have been predicting Christ's return since the day he left denominations themselves are built on failed predictions. Go Google the Great Disappointment. That's the beginning of Seventh-day Adventists who started with a bad prediction from, a, um, from the Millerites, I believe it was. Uh, but we long for, to predict, to study the, um, the test. Let me start that over. Hold on. Why do we want to know when Jesus is come, coming back? Because why should we study for the test when we know uh, we can study the answer key? And Jesus tells us there is no answer key here in this verse. Instead of waiting and trying to blurt out a date and some facts that we have jumbled together, instead of being vigilant, or vigilant and trusting the Father's plan and obeying his will, we try to come up with charts and days to predict it. And thus far, many have been sorely disappointed. But we can be vigilant because we trust the Father's plan. Notice verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. If the angels do not know, and Jesus Christ the Son, when he was a human, did not know, um, why do we think that we can know the day of Christ's return? Seriously, the audacity to think that. And verse 4 tells us, uh, all the way back in chapter 13, verse 4, tell us when these things were happening. The disciples wanted a sign. They wanted a wonder. What will the sign be when all these things are accomplished? You have to remember the core conviction of the gospel of Scripture. Apart from your eschatological system that you 
um, shove text in like a meat grinder making sausage. Jesus is coming back to vanquish sin and death and to gather his own to himself. And we must be ready. There's no hidden code in Scripture to unlock the day of his return. There's no secret knowledge um, that was able to, that is disseminated to the faithful so they know. There's no sign that we can witness. No one knows but the Father. And until that day when he returns, we must watch, wait, and work. Don't be like the kids who know their parents will be home at 4 o'clock from a day off or a weekend out and at 3.45 start to clean up when they hear the car coming in the driveway. Don't be like those kids. Obey the Lord and trust the plan of the Father. Don't allow yourselves to be hoodwinked by false prophets and false teachers who are being used by Satan to take our eyes off the work that has been given to us by the Father. We are living in the last days. According to Scripture, so are the disciples. Because the last days are from the time between the manger and the coronation of Christ. From Christ's first coming and his second coming are the last days. We must not allow misguided infatuation of details and signs and wonders and myths and endless genealogies to erode our trust in the love of our Heavenly Father. James Edwards, one of the commentators that I often go to, says this, In the midst of calamity and destruction, tribulation and persecution, even when the sun, moon, and stars are shaken, the believer may, um, may rest assured that God is still Father, and as Father, he may remain steadfast in his just will, compassion, and purpose. Therefore, we can trust our Heavenly Father. Stop looking for signs and wonders and start trusting the Father in the midst of calamity. Remember, on the cross, the Father demonstrated his love for us. The question is, will you trust him with your heart? Will you trust him with your life? If so, you will obey the Father's will today and not try to figure out the day that he returns and cram for the test at the last minute. And then in verse 33 through 37, we must obey the Father's will. Ignorance about the timing of Christ's second coming is no use for being unprepared. Our master has gone into heaven. He has promised that he will return. We don't need to know the day or the hour. We need to know what Jesus has tasked us to do. Verse 33, be on guard and keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. While this master's gone, cooks cook, and butlers oversee, and farmers work the field, and doorkeepers watch. That's their one job. Stay awake and watch. Watch for threats and watch for the master. Each servant is called to do their job while the master is away. And they serve their master by doing the work that the master 
has trusted them to do. When he's in the house, and especially when he's away. However, Jesus in this parable isn't telling us to cook and to be butlers and to be farmhands. Jesus specifically focuses on the doorkeepers. Notice verse 35. The doorkeepers whose one job is to stay awake and watch. Therefore, Jesus says, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. These words were not written to inform us. These words were written to shake us from our lethargy. These weren't to protect us from the distraction of the mysterious. These words were written to stir us into active obedience. I apologize. It's really hot up here. Um, Sorry. That was a bad execution of the, I've got to work on that. They didn't, I didn't do well in that class in seminary, the, the coat toss. These words are written to stir us to active obedience. These words are a call to action. Or as our family says, don't just stand there with your teeth in your mouth. Do something. Verse 32, this repetition of stay awake. But concerning that day or the hour, no one knows. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the time will come. Stay awake. Verse 35, you don't know when the master of the house will come. Stay awake. Ocean Park, we must be vigilant. We must stay awake. Let me ask you this today. What is lulling you to sleep? What is causing you to not focus on the return of your master, but to grow groggy and fall asleep? Is it materialism? Are you so consumed with accumulating the treasures of this world, you don't have time or any passing thought of of your Savior in his return? Is it your work? Are you building your kingdom first and foremost, and you have no time for Jesus? Is it pleasure? You want comfort and excitement, peace, ease, um, um, exhilaration, or quiet, and watching for Jesus and doing his will and working is just too much of a disruption. Is your focus yourself? Are you like Narcissus, the, the Greek story, and you're so captivated by your reflection that you forget about everything in this world, especially Jesus? who calls you to deny yourself and follow him? Is it the tyranny of the urgent? That you, um, you have to get the kids educated, you have to punch the clock, you have to fix the house, you have to fulfill your commitments, you have to uh, pay the bills, you have to catch the next plane, that you don't have time to stay awake and watch for Jesus? Is it proving your worth to God? Are you trying to build your spiritual resume to show Jesus how valuable you are compared to the heathen around you so you build up theological hobby horses to make yourself better than everybody and you look down on your nose at those people and those churches who aren't like you? 
And all the while, you're looking down on your nose to Jesus and the least of these. Are you looking for a secret knowledge that unlocks this, this gnosis, as the Greek says? Are you like the, first per- or the person in 1 Timothy who devotes themselves to myths and endless genealogy, which only sp- um, promotes speculation? It's an overemphasis on eschatology that you miss the forest in the trees. You study this stuff so much that you miss Jesus, but you know the signs and the wonders and the charts and the graphs and the times and the dates. Or is all of this, what's lulling you to sleep, is it simply a lack of faith? You really don't believe the words of Jesus. You think we live and that we die. The reality is we are just called to live, eat, eat, drink, and be merry. Our life doesn't really matter. Ocean Park, every one of us And every single one of these areas and more will pull us away from watchfulness and lull us into a faithless slumber that's not watching for our Savior to return. We must stay awake. The most important things that Christians are called to do, as Mark says earlier in 13.10, is to preach the gospel to the nations. We must obey the Father's will while we wait his return to make disciples, to be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea to the uttermost parts of the earth, to Jacksonville and the United States and all the nations of the world. We are to tell them that the King is returning. We need to tell them to repent and believe. Because when the Son of Man comes, he's not going to quiz us on Bible knowledge. Who got it right? Who had the right prediction? Because if you go on Wikipedia, there's about eight or nine more predictions of when Jesus is coming. And I promise you, they're going to be 0 for 8 as well. Jesus is not going to quiz us how well we were about that. He will want to know what his servants were doing. Were we proclaiming the gospel to the nations at home, at work, across the globe? Were we enduring suffering faithfully, treasuring Christ more than the comforts of this world, more than the approval that this world will give us? Were we fulfilling our assigned task, using the gifts that he has given us to strengthen and, up and build up the body to accomplish the task of bringing life to the nation, light to the nations. And those who have been asleep on the job or buried in the task of trying to map out the times and dates rather than carrying out the, missions, the, the mission won't just be embarrassed. They will come under the judgment of God. Ocean Park, we must be on our guard, as Jesus tells us. We must be awake. We must be vigilant. Christ's return is near. May we not be found sleeping. May we not be seduced into slumber by the promises of this world, by false promises and hollow lies that the kingdoms of this world utter. 
Instead, may we be vigilant to proclaim the good news of great joy to all people because in this broken world of sin, there is hope. In this world where the things that we hold dear will decay and depreciate, deteriorate and die. In this world where people flower and fade like the um, grass of the fields, we have hope. Not because what we have done, because of what Christ has done. Humbling himself as the one through whom and by whom all things were created, who came and humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross to redeem us from our hopelessness. Our hope is Jesus. And we look forward to that day when he is coming. He will work on the details, but we know he is coming and we join with our brothers and sisters who trust Jesus and look forward to his coming. And we proclaim the words that we'll sing in a moment. Come thou long expected Jesus, the words of John Wesley, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Ocean Park, may we be courageous to trust the Father's heart. May we be vigilant to do the Father's will, knowing that the perils of this world cannot thwart the Father's plan of redemption till he comes back. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, This world is not the way it's supposed to be. Things are difficult. Things are painful. This world is touched and marred by sin. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But in the words of John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. May we be found faithful, awake, looking for our Savior and calling the nations to come and trust him, to see what God has done. For he is our only hope in life and death, and we await for his return. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray, and all God's people said,